You're listening to theoutdoorstation.co.uk. Hello and welcome back to another podcast from The Outdoor Station. And here we are at the Bank Holiday May weekend in the UK. And traditionally, this is the time where people dust off their camping and hiking gear and start to stretch their legs once again as the weather is a little bit more reliable and certainly the uh, the surroundings are looking opulent as they're bursting into, into colour and the leaves are green and the grass is fantastic and... It just makes you want to get out there and do things, which is what these podcasts are all about. And not only our podcasts, actually, um, there are a variety of outdoor podcasts, which we're going to touch on a bit later on in the show, uh, which are also uh, encouraging people to, to get out and about and ensure, uh, explore their local area uh, and uh, enjoy the simplest form of exercise there is, just walking or cycling or, or, or paddling even um, to uh, to see what's about you and watching nature on Unfold as springtime as springtime develops. I'm getting very artistic here, aren't I? Creative. I think I'll step away from that one. Um, so, uh, what have you got on the show? Well, we have um, the usual mix of, uh, of some interviews. We also touch about uh, touch on podcasting, as I say, and uh, talk about uh, new media and old media and how things have perhaps slightly changed just just lately. Um, I'm also going to give you an update of um, where we are preparing for the TGO Challenge. Uh, most UK listeners will will know what the TGO Challenge is. It's the two 100-mile walk across Scotland, which starts, uh, well, in about three or four days' time. And I'm going to tell you where we are in our preparation, which uh, which might amuse you, uh, and set up the series of podcasts that we'll, we'll be doing when we actually um, do the crossing as well. Uh, but on the show itself, uh, just to give uh, listeners a bit of diverse um, entertainment... We are talking to, I speak to Roger Payne, who's the editor of uh, Photography Monthly magazine, uh, about um, how photography is uh, changing slightly and people's view towards it, uh, as well as, obviously, people who enjoy the outdoors, uh, what they can get from it, uh, and so on. Uh, I also talk to Danielle Porter from uh, Malaysia Tourism uh, about the practicalities of taking a lightweight or a backpacking trip over in uh, Malaysia uh, and how easy it is to get about and, obviously, save costs and so on. But but first, Andy Howell talks to James Morton uh, at the recent uh, destination show up at the NEC. Uh, now, Andy's uh, he's always a tent man, as most people will know. He's a bit of a tent nut. And uh, when he saw a Mongolian gur uh, pitched up at the actual show, it drew him in, and he sat and chatted with James Morton, uh, who is keen to offer uh, uh, trips and uh, sort of custom-made adventure holidays, if you like, uh, over in an area that people don't normally think about. And that's exactly what Andy asked him. Mongolia isn't really the place that people initially think of for a holiday destination. Uh, well, it should be. OK, so come on, sell it to us. Um, it looks... I mean, looking at the stand here, it looks, it looks fantastic. But uh, so what am I going to see and do and experience in Mongolia? Well, first of all, um, Mongolia is quite a big country. So you might want to pick a particular region to do your outdoor activity. Um, it's about three times the size of France. Um, there's no privately owned land in the country, so you're pretty much free to roam where you want. And um, there's only a population of 2.7 million people, so plenty of room. If you think that half of those live in the capital, um, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot to explore. It's one of the last sort of uh, unspoiled wildernesses of Asia, really. So uh, let's say I've got 
two or three weeks to to explore um, the area. I, I mean, I, I want to really get a feel for some of that traditional lifestyle if I can. What would be the best way of tackling it, and what kind of kind of variety of um, activities could I put together? Right. Well, we're running uh, in the winter, for example. We're doing dog sledding. And there's a few festivals in the winter as well. Uh, the Camel Herd has put a festival on the South Gobi, and there's also an eagle hunting festival. Uh, the, the Kazakhs they hunt with eagles in Mongolia in the far west. Um, but uh, you know it's an ecological crossover zone. So you've got the Gobi Desert in the south, so you could do some camel trekking down there. In the very far north, it constitutes Siberia, so there's lots of uh, forested areas, large forests. Um, the reindeer herders are up there, so sometimes we trek and horse trek to visit them over in the Darkhad Depression. Um, and in the far west as well, uh, we do a lot of, there's been a mountaineering. Uh, Mount Hutin is a very tall mountain, uh, very close to, to the Chinese and Russian border. In the, in the, you can actually see China, Russia and Kazakhstan from the top of that mountain. Uh, we also do some rafting in the country. So uh, how does the tailor-made process work with panoramic journeys and, and, and what kind of service could I expect to get when I'm over there? Right, well, we're sort of running two types of trips as well. Uh, the expeditions, which I've just spoken about, a lot of that's tented camping, but you'll stay in gears as well, in, in what we call the yurts. So you're actually you're staying in one of these traditional shelters that yeah. we've got here. Yeah, and then when we're getting up, you know, if we're going up a mountain or anything like that, there won't be a gear up there, that's where we use the tents. And we're also, depending on where we are, sometimes we use, we use um, you know, uh, uh, vehicle support. In the Gobi, it's a lot easier to do that, but um, some places where we're going up, into the mountains, that's not possible. So we just use horses and camels to carry our equipment. Um, but we also do um, what we call classic journeys, which are a lot more comfortable. So that's every night you'd be staying in your own gear. So it's very warm, you have a stove and two beds. Um, you know, we have shower and, and uh, you know, flush loo facilities and also large restaurant gear as well, which is quite impressive. I like sort of, you know, it's like dining with Genghis Khan sometimes. <laughs> How could you resist an invitation to, to dine with Genghis Khan, I guess? So you can be as adventurous or, or as, uh, yeah. as you want to Absolutely. be. Absolutely. If you want me to drop you off in the desert with no water, I can do that. Fantastic. Or, you know, put you up a mountain uh, with, without a compass or whatever, that's fine. But, you know, the other side of it is, I mean, we spent, uh, you know, a lot of what we've done is, is making Mongolia accessible to all sorts of people so we can make it as, as rough or as comfortable as, as you like. Well, I guess people who've explored areas like the Himalaya and really loved that experience, this is, this is something different. This is a, a kind of next step, really, into, into a maybe more wilder, even, even more traditional kind of a lifestyle. Yeah, the, the Mongolian nomads, I mean, they're living pretty much... Uh, they didn't build very much, but their way of life is practically unchanged. I mean, it really... Not just the way they... Not just the way of life, their beliefs, you know, uh, their their culture, their traditions are, are almost unchanged. And how did you discover Mongolia? Well, uh, I was travelling there in 2002, so not that long ago. And uh, I was in the country for three weeks, and by the second week I was thinking of ways to come back. And uh, we decided that wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to lead trips in this country. That's it, we, just went, we came home. You know, uh, my good wife gave me a, uh, a kick and said, uh, get on with it. And um, six years later, we've, we've, you know, we've uh, been doing it. It's been absolutely wonderful. And uh, we've been doing Bhutan now for two years.
Okay, so if I wanted to uh, start having a chat with you about putting together something or looking at a trip, um, how would I start? I guess I could find you on the web? Yep, um, www.panoramicjourneys.com is the website. Um, yeah, have a look. All of, our, all of our itineraries are on the web and a lot of other information as well. You could get stuck. A lot of good photographs up there as well. So, um, yeah, that's probably your, your first port of call. And the website, once again, is uh, panoramicjourneys.com. And uh, I don't know why, but I've always had this urge to go to Mongolia and, and ride a horse across it for some reason. It must be something to do with rows and horse riding, but I, I can't see the point of learning to ride a horse unless you're doing something big. And um, I, uh, I think Mongolia would be big enough for me. And talking of uh, of big things, um, the TGO Challenge, as I say, is uh, is only a few days away. This is um, I'm recording this on Bank Holiday weekend, and we leave on uh, on Wednesday night uh, to to start the challenge. Uh, we'll be travelling on the Thursday, rather. Uh, start the challenge on the Friday, uh, and it's pretty well two weeks uh, of uh, of 300 or so people uh, walking from west to east coast across Scotland. Uh, now, normally, uh, we would be super fit by now because Rose and I are sort of fairly keen runners. Uh, and Rose is super fit, uh, but sadly I'm not. I've had this niggling foot injury, which every time I exercise has given me jip. So the last few weeks I've been sitting back with my feet up while she's been out swimming and running and cycling and making me sick generally. Um, so uh, when you meet us in Scotland, uh, she'll be the fit bird that's uh, ahead of me and I'll be hobbling along behind um, huffing and puffing, I'm sure. Uh, so, uh, so the fitness levels aside, uh, a lot of people approach uh, the challenge and, and get out and, and uh, perhaps a few weeks beforehand and sort of dust off the gear and get used to carrying weight again. Uh, other people uh, perhaps take it a bit more seriously and and uh, really do get stuck into uh, the gym and running. Uh, and others, um, because of sort of the age range of people doing the challenge, it sort of ten generally tends to be uh, at least fifties plus, more likely sixties plus, to be honest. Is um, are people who are sort of retired or semi-retired, and um, there are a few of them, uh, one or two of which I hope to meet on the way across, who are um, lifelong hikers. They they go from one trek to another, uh, and there's one particular guy uh, that I have interviewed before, Martin Banfield, who um, is part of a, a walking group, and his entire life and blog seems to be spent spent hiking, and he goes to some terrific places. So we'll, we'll catch up with him. But back to us and our preparations. Well, uh, I'm just. Going to disconnect this from the main uh, microphone and walk into my room where I have all my gear spread out, and we'll just have a quick two minutes on that. Well, I'm going to keep this uh, fairly short because it's um, pretty much of a muchness, and uh, most people probably listening to the, the podcast, if they're into uh, general lightweight hiking, uh, uh, will probably be aware of most of the equipment and have got themselves down to the same uh, kind of weights. Um, but uh, simply put, we have uh, we've just got our uh, our gear spread across the floor in a, in a spare room at the moment, and we both uh, tend to uh, have the same type of equipment, but um, obviously specifically for uh, for Rose or I, male and female um, uh, gear uh, choices, uh, colours obviously, <laughs> in Rose's case, do affect things. That's way the with with women, and mine is uh, keep it black and it's simple. It goes with absolutely anything. Um, so, uh, really, what have we got? Well, I've got the um, the new Neo Air, the short new Neo Air, which I'm uh, taking out uh, with a uh, with uh, a little bit of concern because it's a fairly lightweight uh, item and it hasn't been. I haven't tested it yet, in other words, in the field. So I might um, I might have a quick kip on that over the next couple of days to make sure it's um, stable. 
Uh, we've got the new Terranova uh, Solar 2.2, uh, which uh, Andy has recommended uh, in the past, and we used the previous version, which we found a very good tent. So we're looking forward to, to that, and that gives you a f- remarkable amount of space for uh, for less, uh, as very, very little weight, really. Um, on the cooking front is probably the one that's that's given us the biggest dilemma. Um, a lot of people will know that we're, we're really pushing the wood-burning stoves at the moment, combined with a meth stove, as being a, a great... Uh, uh, flexible uh, camping and cooking uh, tool. Um, and we've been torn between taking a wood burner and a meth stove, uh, or just a meth stove, or gas. Um, now, this time, because there's two of us, and also the weather forecast at the moment, uh, I saw a recent thing through the Cairngorms, it's going to be fairly wet and cold. Um, and based on the experience I had when I was walking with Lee last year up in the Cape Wrath Trail, um, I think the wood stove is fine if I'm on my own and I'm prepared to wait for a bit while um, it gets going or I get it going and get food on on the run. Uh, the thing with uh, with walking with uh, with uh, women and I've also uh, we're having our daughter join us for a short while as well, which will be good, is that uh, they tend to get cold very very quickly. And if we've had a cold wet day, um, the my my um, job is to is to get warm food into them as soon as possible and warm them up. Um, and I just would like the reliability of gas. So um, we've gone over to, to back to gas and a couple of uh, tea light mugs and a couple of normal mugs so I can get a brew on the go very, very quickly uh, and uh, and keep them happy. But otherwise, um, keeping it simple uh, without going into detail at this stage, we've just got one set of dry clothes, uh, one set of clothes that we wear uh, during the day uh, and rotate uh, using the layering system, so we'll have um, a base layer, a, a light fleece and a, a windshirt or a rainproof. Uh, one insulating layer, which is uh, my down live jacket and Rose has got her go light jacket. Uh, and that is pretty well it. A couple of RAB Quantum 400 sleeping bags. Um, and the cooking gear is just uh, one spork, one pot, one mug. Uh, we've got a folding plate as well, just in case we need a cutting board. Um, and uh, water, a water filter, the new um, travel tap water filter, first aid kit, and a very, very small wash kit. So that should all go into a pack that's fairly small. Uh, we're trying to get it down to 50 litres if we can this year. But, of course, it's the food, and the as we set out of uh, Oban, we're starting at Oban, uh, we've actually got to carry five days' worth of food with us, which is a little bit frustrating, uh, and that's where the bulk and the weight will come from. I uh, hope that uh, has given people an idea of, of what the sort of things we're taking uh, when we uh, we head off to the to the challenge. Uh, from a from a as I say a preparation point of view, a fitness point of view, we're nowhere near as fit as we used to be, or have been on previous challenges. So, um, but I'm hoping my foot will that will actually enjoy the regular exercise as opposed to sitting behind a PC, which is how I spend most of my life these days. Okay, um, they're talking about uh, um, obviously outdoor people. Most of them have got a, a general interest in photography. And at uh, one of the recent shows, I spoke to Roger Payne, who's the editor of Photography Monthly magazine. Uh, And they have also started podcasts as well, which we'll come on to after the interview. But um, at the time I interviewed him, which was at the beginning of the year, um, the credit crunch was was literally all the news. That's all anybody could talk about. So I started off by asking him if uh, he'd found that uh, photographers and amateurs generally had become more interested in the commercial aspects or commercial possibilities of of taking their hobby and using their skills to to make money from uh, taking photographs of of areas that they're interested in, and obviously in our case, I was very interested in people who have got a passion for the outdoors. 
Um, I think it's safe to say that, um, I mean, I've still got a, a regular band of contributors who contribute to the magazine and always have done and, and probably always will do. I think it's safe to say that in light of what's been going on economically, there have been more people who perhaps have been made redundant or whose jobs are under threat. And consequently, what's happening is they are uh, looking at their other skill set and just sort of saying, well, I, you know, I'm into photography, I've got a digital SLR, can I make some money from that? And so, yes, there has definitely been an increase in the number of people contacting the magazine and offering, and offering images for us to use, yeah, I would say so. And how has it changed now? It's sort of digital is really established as being a quality that is, is printable in magazines, yeah. in high-quality magazines such as, your, such as yours. Um, how has, has the trend in the photographer themselves, their, their confidence in, in the pictures they're taking changed since film days? Yeah, I mean, it definitely has increased because obviously the beauty of digital is that you can actually see the images as you're taking them on the LCD on the back of the camera. So consequently, whereas, whereas a photographer might in the past shooting film have been a little bit unsure as to whether or not he was actually going to be or she was actually going to have to get the shots, uh, and obviously was going to have a nerve-wracking way until the film got processed. Now they can take a picture, look at the LCD, and immediately see whether or not they've got the shot. So as a result of that, you know, people are a lot more confident about, about their own abilities as a photographer. And the, the great thing about digital cameras generally these days is they're all so good. You know, and it's very difficult um, to, to take a badly exposed or out-of-focus picture these days. Whereas you know, a few years ago, as my, as my image files will testify, there, it was very easy to do that. Um, but um, nowadays it's a lot, it's a lot, lot harder. I mean, obviously there is still a lot of skill uh, in taking a good picture. It's not about the camera, it's about the person behind it. Um, but, uh, no, I mean, people are definitely more confident because, of, because the cameras enable them to do that. What about the addition to the mix, of course, Photoshop or any of the other image editing programmes? Yeah. I'm sure you must see a whole range of things which are overdone as well as underdone. Yes, indeed. Um, I mean, people have been using Photoshop as a bit of a crutch uh, in terms of... Uh, you know, it has kind of, if, you know, if their images have lacked a little bit of sharpness or something, they've kind of bumped it up in Photoshop. But um, really, uh, Photoshop is like, a, is like a, a filter, really, in that it should be there only to enhance what's already in the image rather than trying to create something from nothing. And, and yeah, you're right, we do see some images which, um, you know, are just, uh, should never have, you know, seen the light of day, really. But because of Photoshop, they have done and they've sort of created, well... They've, they've, not, they've not really created anything that's printable, but certainly something better than perhaps it was originally. But no, I mean, Photoshop is very much an enhancer, uh, and the tutorials that we do in the magazine are very much along those lines. You know, it's not all about creating something from nothing. It's not about sticking a, a cow on the head of a, you know, on the head of somebody else. You know, it's nothing like that. It's about enhancing what's in in the image. So, we we do obviously use it. I mean, most of the images that we use in the magazine are digital. Um, a lot of them will have gone through Photoshop in some way, shape or form, but um, just tweaked and nothing more. Right. The, with that in mind, uh, and certainly your position in the magazine, seeing the photographs coming through from, from uh, people who are perhaps approaching you, approaching you fresh, is it still a nice revelation to see photographs which have got real talent behind them? Uh, absolutely. I do, mean, you, do you see many of them? Uh, yeah, I mean, actually... Um, there's a surprising number of people um, out there who don't know how talented they are. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it's actually... I, I've, we, we spend a lot of time, I mean, both on our own website and on other people's websites, looking at uh, galleries and, and contacting people through finding them through those galleries and saying, we'd really like to use your pictures in the magazine. And, obvious, and often the first reaction is, blimey, are they good enough? And uh, so it's quite, it's quite interesting in that respect. But... Uh, 
Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, definitely. We, we, we definitely, um, there is definitely a lot of talent out there. And, uh, yeah. What about stock libraries? What are your views on stock libraries? Because they they seem to be growing almost daily, and you've got the the established professional expensive ones, and then you've got the micro stock, which is also gaining a big audience. Yeah, um, stock libraries do seem to sort of come and go quite a lot. Um, I think the, the you know with digital the. When digital first came along, there were loads of people thought they could make a buck out of stock libraries, same way as, as obviously people did with with digital SLRs. Um, the thing is, the interesting thing about stock libraries is that yeah, you've got the full-on professional ones, which are which obviously are there for, for good quality, and if you want to have a very specific picture requirement, then they're the place to go for. And obviously, you get the background knowledge uh, because they'll often have trained staff who know exactly who, who the photographers are, you know what they're shooting, how they're shooting, and so on. So I'd always err on that side of it if I could, but obviously the, the you know in this day and age uh, where we're all under the financial spotlight, the micro stock libraries of which there are a number, um, if you can get an, an image from them that is, is is close to or nearly as good as that you can get from a professional library, uh, and, and it costs a tenth of the price, then it's it's a very difficult argument to justify paying say a hundred pounds for a picture when you can get something very, very similar that most photographers wouldn't recognise a great deal of difference for £10. You know, so it's a, it's a, it's a difficult, uh, difficult argument to have with the bosses. You know, you, I mean, as a, as a purist, I'd like to justify the extra costs, but as a realist, that's not always the case. The actual magazine industry itself, um, as a generalisation, who do they support most of all then when it comes to libraries and photographers? Well, I, speaking personally, I like to support individual photographers. Uh, and and in my, first, um, my first option would always be to use either a reader or a, or a photographer who is one, on one of our databases uh, as somebody who's a regular contributor to the magazine. I would always rather do that first, purely because it, you know, it makes them give them a warm feeling inside. And uh, they actually, I think there's a lot of kudos in actually having your pictures published in a magazine because it's for a lot of our readers, it's actually kind of well, I've arrived. You know, I've actually had my image published in the magazine. Um, so that would be my first sort of uh, my first port of call if I was going to use any images. And then I'd probably use you know the the, the image libraries as kind of a second fallback option if, if the if the first lot didn't weren't able to, to help me out but I mean 99 times out of 100 uh, I find that readers and, and uh, contributors help you know help without any problem at all it's very very rare that I have to turn elsewhere has there been a, a change of late in, in your magazine um, away from sort of fashion and glamour images to more landscape due to the um, legal problems that people, a lot of photographers are complaining about now being stopped by the police doing something they used to do six months ago quite easily? Um, we, we, I mean, we, we haven't really, we haven't moved away from fashion and glamour. I mean, I know in the 80s, you know, sort of that was, glamour photography particularly was one of the, the mainstays of photography magazines. Uh, I mean, times have changed, um, and the reality is, is that a lot of um, a lot of our readers don't shoot that sort of image. So obviously, there is more of a turn towards, you know, approachable subjects, which landscapes are approachable for a large majority of people, purely because you know you don't have to pose them, they don't run away, you know, you don't have to talk to them, you know, what have you. Um, so um, yeah, I mean, there has been sort of a more of a turn to, to, to covering off more of that stuff, really. Yeah. 
I've noticed it on, on your forum and a few other forums as well. Certainly, the uh, uh, issues photographers are having yeah. with uh, with the legal confusion really about whether they can or can't take a picture in a public place. And as far as I know, nothing has really changed as yet. But the rules seem to be moving, and they're getting a lot of PR, which is confusing people. Do you have people on your on your forum that can clarify the situation for those? Uh, unfortunately, because our forums are very new, we've actually just changed the website completely, and uh, we've redone it. Uh, we don't actually have um, people on our forum who can. And the problem is, I don't know that anybody exists who can actually 100% clarify what the stance is and I think you just have to be you know the day and age in which we are living if you get a tripod out in a public place you have to be prepared for the fact that somebody might see that as a, you know a potentially um, threatening activity to the to the to the safety of everyone um, and everybody knows that any you know so self photographer knows that that's not the case but you know, if that's the day and age in which we live, it's the same way as it's. You can't take photographs of children. You know, it's 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 kind of society, and unfortunate as it is, it's a it's a kind of reality. Um, and I guess if anybody comes up, comes up with that, has that sort of problem where they're approached by you know a policeman or a security guard or something like that, is is to actually apologise. You know, and and actually not get a, a, get aggressive about it. Because we don't want, as photographers, as a group of photographers, we don't want to get a bad name for ourselves. We just want to take, you know, nice pictures and good pictures. Uh, and I wouldn't want to, you know, hear where a photographer's been, uh, you know, aggressive and then moaned about the fact that they then had their card taken out of their camera or, you know, had a bit of, you know, aggression back. Um, so I just think it's like I, if somebody came up to me and said you couldn't use it, can't use a tripod here. My first, my first reaction would be, I'm very sorry, I wasn't aware of that. You know, um, I'm just an amateur photographer doing this. Can I carry on? If they said no, I'd say fine and, and, and move on. Uh, but, you know, it's just the way it is, unfortunately. All useful stuff. Well, thanks very much indeed for your time uh, on, that, uh, on that score. And uh, perhaps you'd like to mention the website where people can find out more about the magazine. Yep, the website, thank you for the plug, is uh, it's www.photographymonthly.com. After that interview with uh, Roger, we were chatting, and he was telling me that uh, Photography Monthly were intending to produce their own range of podcasts, and we were got uh, chatting about podcasting in, and in general, uh, which they've now done. I notice if you go over to photography, photography, easy for you to say, photographymonthly.com, and the download section, you'll see there's uh, three podcasts currently uh, to to listen to. I've listened to the first one, which was a review of the um, the Focus Show, and I've downloaded the others uh, for. Uh, for listening to you later, uh, so that'll be quite interesting. Uh, they've also got on the download section a free PDF on the A to Z of making money from your photography. Uh, and that might be interesting to outdoors people who uh, have got some great landscapes. Now, uh, talking about links and uh, podcasting in general, um, new media went through a surge I suppose, uh, what, two years ago, possibly three years ago, where everybody wanted to be a DJ and do, do podcasting. Uh, and it's sort of died down to a trickle now of people that have really got some good content um, to talk about, and it's well worth listening to. may not be as slick or as professional as, as uh, obviously, mainstream broadcasting, but having said that, the passion's there and also the, the information. 
Now, many people uh, will know uh, Andy Howell uh, and his uh, blog must be this way. Uh, Andy's blog site is uh, andyhowell.info and then slash trek hyphen blog. And you'll see, um, well, it's, he's a very, very popular blogger, so um, I'm sure if you just type in Andy Howell or must be this way into Google, you'll find him. Um, he does uh, covers a whole range of things uh, from a, a, a really eloquently written point of view, but also he does a lot of podcasts with me as well. Uh, and um, apparently a year or so ago, he got contacted by Peter Grant, who is the manager of um, the Interpretation and Education section at the Parks and Wildlife Service in Tasmania. Tasmania, the island of uh, Australia, southern Australia. Uh, beautiful place, have been there once. Anyway, they've now started to produce a series of podcasts thanks to Andy's advice. Uh, and I've just downloaded them to, to have a listen. They've got video as well. Uh, so if you're, again, interested in a, a bit of a diverse content to do with the outdoors world, then uh, have, pop along and, and download those. And e, the website is parks.tas.gov.au. And under the publication section, you'll see the podcast. So uh, I'm looking forward to watching and uh, listening to those uh, and finding out more. And in fact, when I typed in Tasmania into iTunes, uh, this didn't come up, but there are a range of other outdoor podcasts um, based in Tasmania. So I uh, must make an effort to, to download some of those and get them onto my playlist to, to have a listen to. Now, uh, another person that's producing great content is uh, Gary Mittelholz over in uh, Canada, uh, and his podcast is Doing Stuff Outdoors. Uh, and I was listening to, um, to well, one of his blog sites at the moment, actually. <laughs> you know, I must listen to this one. I'm, I'm sorry. Perhaps it's just shows the sort of person I am, but, you know, it's curiosity, isn't it? Number 90. We'll hear about the AT tradition where through hikers hike naked on the first day of summer. Okay, that's one for later. Um, but the one I was actually referring to was... Um, move my notes along here. Was uh, number 87, where he talks to Kent Zotter. Uh, whose trail name is Toothless, uh, as he's one of the hikers on the Appalachian Trail. Now, Kent um, is a bit of a social animal, and he, he organises group hikes, uh, and a real sociable group by the sound of it, that do different sections of the AT over a period of time. And what he's also done, uh, I found out through this podcast of, of Gary's, is that he's got his own uh, range of podcasts uh, called AT Hiking. Again, if you type in Appalachian Trail into iTunes, you'll find it. Uh, I think it just comes up as straightforward as AT Hiking. I've just got iTunes here at the moment. Where are we? Um, AT Hiking, the podcast. And uh, he's got uh, currently got 16 episodes on that. Uh, and I've downloaded those and had to listen to a few. And again, um, shares the passion and the love and also transports you to uh, to the location, which is superb. And the link again from him is I was listening to one of his and he was talking to a couple of guys um, who he met on the trail um, called Southern, no, South Eastern Backpackers. And they are a couple of buddies that uh, also have a blog. Uh, the blog site is familybriefs.com slash southeasternbackpackers.com. But again, they can be found on iTunes. And they've got a series of, uh, of podcasts uh, about their uh, their range of uh, activities and things they do. And it sounds like a good couple of buddies having a bit of a laugh, but also talking um, with knowledge and experience. And they're up to number 62, so there's plenty there to listen to as well. And uh, it sort of concludes, really, that um, 
brings home to me anyway that the new media has definitely established a bit of a, a foothold in uh, various areas of interest, and it's and it's good to see people um, taking the time and effort to do these and uh, share the passion and inspiration. It's inspired me to actually record this again. Uh, get another one out, as it were, um, because like everybody, life is rather busy at the moment, and seemingly spare time seems to be a very rare commodity. Um, however, um, I enjoy doing them. Uh, it's great getting the feedback. I had a lovely email from somebody the other day. Uh, sorry, I've forgotten your name because it's not in front of me, but um, he was telling me that he's actually gone back to 2000 and uh, 2005 when I first started, and he's listening to every single podcast on on the outdoor station and on Backpacking Light. Um, so by the time he gets to hearing about uh, about this email he sent me, it'll be 2010. Uh, and there are a lot of people getting a lot of pleasure and using them for, for reference and going back and listening to things in the past to pick up uh, information they might have missed the first time round. Anyway, I've probably digressed far too long on that section. Um, I'm now looking for my original notes of what we're actually going to be talking about. Um, we are now uh, going to the exotic place of Malaysia. I've been very lucky. I've been to Malaysia on a backpacking trip myself. Uh, in fact, it was the first trip that I took my teenage daughters on, uh, which was a great experience uh, for them. Uh, I think they were probably uh, 10, 12, 12, 13 at the time. Uh, and it was their first proper backpacking trip, living out of a rucksack, living in hostels, uh, and um, they, uh, they've been travelling ever since and uh, grown to be as passionate about it as, as we have. Uh, you learn a lot about yourself, uh, about the world, and about other people uh, when you, uh, you, you do that type of thing. So we reckon it's one of the best educations you can get. Anyway, um, I digress. I spoke to Daniel Porter, who's the marketing manager uh, from Malaysia Tourism. Uh, at I think it was the destination show, um, and that the we were discussing the fact that uh, Malaysia is, a, is an inexpensive destination for the independent traveller once you're there, but first, of course, you have to get there. Um, yeah, we have two international flights, um, both from one from Heathrow with Malaysia Airlines, and then we have another new service which starts on the 11th of March, um, AirAsia, which is a low-cost carrier. Um, basically, they're doing very good flights at the moment. Um, the flight doesn't launch till the 11th of March, though. Um, and then there are other ways. I mean, from Birmingham, you can get flights with Emirates or KLM via Amsterdam and Dubai. Um, and there are other airlines, such as Singapore Airlines via Singapore, Cathay Pacific via Hong Kong. So there's enough international flights to get you to Malaysia. It's and a 12-hour flight in total. Yes, yeah, so it's a fair distance, but but they're not. I mean, they're very affordable, aren't they? I think they're around the 400-pound mark or less. Either. Yeah. I mean, obviously, in today's current climate, uh, everyone's everyone's looking for value at the moment, and therefore all the airlines have slashed their prices. So very affordable flights, leading in probably around 350 mark at the moment now for a return flight. Okay, so let's just talk about the, the independent traveller then, who's, who's picked up a bargain now, and it's, it's obviously going to go to Kuala Lumpur. Um, he arrives, or she arrives, uh, how easy is it for them to find accommodation and get about and explore all the, the, the whole variety of adventures that, that, that are there? Um, very easy. Um, I mean, as soon as you arrive into Kuala Lumpur, they have an um, uh, express train into the city centre, which is around 35 ringgit one way, which is our equivalent maybe of £4 now. Um, that takes 35 minutes. Um, once you're there, there's plenty of accommodation in Kuala Lumpur. You can literally walk around and find lots of hotels, youth hostels, um, three-star hotels at very reasonable prices, um, leading in at, I don't know, £9 a room a night. So, really, it's up to you. Um, once you're there, there's lots of shopping, restaurants, um, 
sightseeing that you can do there so it has something for everything and then obviously the diversity of the different cultures that they have there um, I mean that's the one thing about Malaysia that actually struck us when we were out there many years ago is just that how much it does embrace a lot of other cultures uh, but there's no tension between the cultures well that's certainly what we felt at the time no no there's uh, you, you don't feel like there's any tension at all um, it's very peaceful um, obviously it's made up of um, the majority being the Muslim religion um, and then but it's very much um, based on Indian um, Malay and Chinese culture so combine the three there's lots of variety there in terms of food as well yes yeah, so that's the other thing I'd say that's fantastic about it now the the I mean the independent traveler obviously once he's done the tourist thing for a few days and tuned into the country uh, he perhaps wants to to go further afield um, uh, is what are their traveling options there's obviously presumably buses or taxis or, or flights I mean do tell me a bit more about that and the sort of prices yeah um, I mean there, there's such a range to get around Malaysia and and as I said before Malaysia has something for everyone um, for example um, um, it has one of the world's oldest national rainforests, um, Tamanagara, which once you're in Kuala Lumpur, you can have a private car there to take you there, which is about two and a half hours and would cost you about £24. Or you can visit one of the beach destinations, Penang, or the duty-free um, island of Langkawi, um, which, again, you can fly with Malaysia Airlines or Firefly. Um, and, again, very cheap prices, uh, flight uh, being about £30 for a 45-minute flight. And there are low-cost carriers offering flights between the two for about £12. So, it, again, it's just very easy to get around. Um, coach tours are also very popular. Um, trains. Um, it all depends on what the client wants to do, really. So, the, the, uh, back to the independent traveller, perhaps uh, somebody wants a little bit more luxury than the average backpacker, but, but still wants the adventure and the experience. Uh, I know Asia, over the, the last 20 years, 30 years or more even probably, has been a great destination for the backpacker, and there has always been this, the beach that they would head to, or the island that was the inn island, at the, and so on. Certainly the, the Langawis of this world are, are, are very much uh, the tourist destination, which have got the package um, uh, destination. But what sort of islands, where should they go if they're looking for something with a little bit more seclusion? Okay, um... Well, I would probably recommend the east coast of Malaysia. Um, a lot of people don't know about it yet because it, it, it's one of the destinations that hasn't been, you know, that that popular in the UK market. Um, but a lot of the backpackers and a lot of people who want rest and relaxation will, relaxation will go to the east coast of Malaysia, places such as Tranganu, um, Tiaman Island, Redang Island, um, and that's also great for people who love diving as well. Um, and again, very cheap value for money, stretches of beaches that are very uncommercialised, um, where you'll find it's just amazing to relax and find beach huts and just have fun basically so so i mean you obviously have great experience of malaysia and you've been several times yourself i'm sure um what sort of budget should people be be looking at if they were looking for a small independent holiday on on their own and they were they were sort of humble but they wanted a little bit of comfort and security what what's the daily budget would you say is a rough average oh i mean food is very cheap if you eat off the local stalls it's about a pound um, and if you if you stay in one of these beach huts, nine pound uh, a beach hut a night. They probably are cheaper. I may not have experienced them, um, but yeah, I mean you could easily get by on fifteen pound a day in Malaysia, just because food is so cheap and it's very safe to eat the food off the stools as well. I was going to say about the safety aspect. Of it, there's the food uh, issues, but also sort of general travelling safety. Um, again, based on the religion of the country, I always felt quite safe there but is that still the same now yeah i mean i'm i'm quite happy i mean like anywhere in the world you have to be cautious if you're walking around a city center with your handbag or whatever um but that's everywhere in the world and 
generally, as someone who goes out to Malaysia a lot on their own, the safety is fine there. You know, I feel quite safe going out in the evening on my own. Um, there are some areas that, you know, someone may not wish to go to on their own, but, I mean, we've never heard of any really real issues for safety that I've experienced during my time at Tourism Malaysia. So I'd feel more than safe, especially the East Coast. There's so many people around that you're always seeing someone or bumping into someone and meeting new people. And, and the culture, obviously, they're very friendly people. Um, so people come and speak to you if they don't know you because they just like to meet English people. <laughs> Uh, the, the, the getting about it, there's quite a few airports now compared to when I was there last, which was about five, ten years ago, I suppose. Um, getting across the country by plane would certainly knock off a few hours, but is it, is it affordable? Um, yeah, it's very affordable. Um, a lot of people um, have actually started doing self-driving as well, actually picking up a car and driving down the east coast of Malaysia. Um, but, yeah, no, I mean, taxis are very affordable. Um, flights are very affordable. Um, I would probably say um, a flight. If you were trying, if you if you were flying between Penang and Langkawi, for an example, um, which is 45 minutes, you can pick up a flight for nine pound if you didn't want to have the ferry option. So there is so many cheap ways of getting around. So, so in this day and age, it's definitely a, a bargain destination to, to keep your eyes open for, for, for low tickets for. It is, and everyone seems, the key for this year, everyone seems to be looking for value, and Malaysia certainly has that value to offer. So even though it's, it's cheaper, it's actually still giving you quality, which is the main thing, isn't it? It is. It's a, you know, a lot of people say that the quality there is unbelievable because you can stay in a three-star hotel in Malaysia, and it's the equivalent of a five-star hotel in, in the UK. Um, finally, you're a very blonde person. How do you actually get on over in Malaysia? Uh, I'm actually okay, yeah. Uh, obviously, the obvious, uh, the obvious question people ask me is, you're not actually from Malaysia, are you, Danielle? Well, no, I'm not, but no, fine. You know, there's no... Uh, it's, people do ask me this question. They're like, oh, being very blonde, do you, do you find that a lot of men are, like, attracted to, the, to you because, obviously, they don't see it very often? No, that's not the case at all. You know, they're very respectable. They're very respectable destinations. And so you don't get troubled as a, a single no, female traveller? No troubles whatsoever. I feel more than safe when travelling to Malaysia on my own. Well, that uh, pretty well brings the show to an end. Thanks to Daniel from uh, Malaysia Tourism. Uh, the website, again, once again, is tourism-malaysia.co.uk. Uh, also to Roger Payne from Photography Monthly magazine and to James Morton from Panoramic Journeys. All the links, of course, will be in the show notes to shortcut to their particular website. Thanks also for, uh, to Andy for uh, for his... Uh, contribution as well and also uh, thanks to all the other outdoors uh, people that are producing podcasts uh, to for, for keeping me inspired uh, and uh, keeping the the passions to share the love and appreciation of the world around us uh, while we've all still got it anyway i better sort myself out get this uh, podcast edited and uploaded and while i'm doing that i need to sit down and start to go through my food which i haven't prepared yet for the tgo as i need to post that ahead and get uh, get shot of that on Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, yes, I'm leaving it a bit late, uh, but hopefully, like all good plans, it'll all come together in the end. Anyway, take care, everybody. Have a good, safe springtime, and don't forget to just get out there and enjoy it. Bye for now. This independent programme has been brought to you by The Outdoor Station, the exciting new way to see and hear free information about the outdoors world. If you're a blogger 
Or if you have a website, you can now incorporate any of these podcasts directly to your site, completely free. Visit our website, theoutdoorstation.co.uk, for more information. 